Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey, Biblical World podcast listeners, this is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We've got a brand new episode for you here on the Egyptian background to the plagues narrative in the book of Exodus that we think you'll enjoy. So without further ado, let's get on with it. Welcome back, Biblical World listeners. We are excited today to talk about the plagues. I am with Mark Jansen. Uh, we've been going through a series on uh, ancient Egypt and the Bible. We've discussed a variety of things, including the date of the Exodus, Moses, and some other background elements. Today, we're looking at the plagues. Mark, how are you doing this morning? I'm good, Chris. Yeah, we're just excited to be here, talk a little Exodus with you, wrapping up the semester here this week. So here we are. Yeah, and, and I think um, you were hoping to go to Egypt this, uh, like last month or so, and apparently it fell through. So you're 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 going to be going back to Karnak sometime this next year, right, to continue your project? Yeah, in theory. Uh, yeah, we just, we didn't get our uh, clearances in time to make the logistics work and had to just kind of pull the plug. But yeah, we should be going next November, I hope. So Nice. Back to the most amazing building of the ancient world. It is absolutely the most amazing building. Huge. I was uh, that, which is of course kids. Karnak Temple. Yeah, Karnak Temple. Yeah, I was showing my kids the some of the stuff with it, and I talked to my eight-year-old's third-grade classes last week, half of them, and then I'm doing the other half of them actually after we're done here. And I was just like, "You can put a football stadium in it." I was trying to like. They don't really know anything about like I usually use Notre Dame, right? Like as my comparison, but I think it probably wouldn't work all that well with eight year olds. So it's it's always fun to talk about and work different audiences there. So trying to, you know, keep it in mind, even though I'm not in the field like I'm supposed to be right now. I've found other things to do. Yeah, and actually I saw at Karnak that they are uh, doing a lot of restoration work uh, based upon the photos. Like you can, you can see that really even in the hypostyle hall, which is like that main area that you, when you come into, like just from the photos alone, you can see that with the cleanup, it's really coming back to to like it's never been before. Like even the way it was when it was first, you know, when, when Europeans first were coming to to look at it. So I'm really excited eventually to to go back and and see it after seeing some of those some of those photos. And I, I think, you know, as we, as we train job, are they, they're doing a wonderful job there. Yeah. I mean, so we have the concession for the hypostyle hall. That's the project as a whole. And then I do a wall around the corner specifically, but so they were working on it last year and they're even further along this year. It's one of the bummer things about not being able to go is I wanted to see how much more they had done. Cause I know they've started to work their way down the columns. They started kind of at the top and I was asking them about how they were doing it. It was basically a, just an all distilled water-based kind of approach. It's not hardly chemical at all. Uh, if I was now, are you, is, is your guy's project connected with the, the um, conservation and cleaning, or is that done by the Egyptians? That's done by the Egyptians, and they're doing a really good job with it from what we can tell. I mean, obviously, uh, it's exciting to see the colors pop again, and you know, it'll be, it'll be, I'll be interested to see like how often they have to kind of keep doing it once it's done. Uh, should 
obviously last for a while, you would hope, but uh, they're doing a really, really nice job with it. And so if you haven't been to Karnak, it's even more splendid now. And if you've been before, you should go again for the same reason. Yeah. And you should always just go because it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, ASAP. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think that even thinking about the plagues, one of the enduring elements of, of course, with the Exodus story is is these plagues that we have that bring Egypt to its knees and, and allow um, Israel to, to go out in what we call the Exodus. But besides the, you know, enduring element that it has in the Bible, and it's reflected all over the place, not just in Exodus, but with the Western recovery of Egyptian um, reliefs and, 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 and life and, and all the things that are depicted there, whether that be uh, everyday life of, of people farming or the Nile River depicted on these reliefs or different deities like Hopi, who is the, you know, the blue god of the Nile. Uh, I just feel like these scenes uh, are such a, a, an attraction to people um, and provide just a, 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 a living color to the story of the Exodus uh, in general, and I would say the plagues in particular. And so it really allows us to get into that world in a way that we wouldn't be uh, able to if it were not for the enduring legacy of Egyptian art and Egyptian um, reliefs that we see at places like Karnak and Luxor Temple, but also in, in you know further northern northern sites in, in Lower Egypt. So it's it's cool to um, I mean a, a lot of people's first attraction is because they they see some of these reliefs and they're like, wow this 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 is a scene that I can visualize when Moses and Aaron would be coming to. Um, coming to uh, these temples and coming to these palaces and interacting with with Pharaoh. And, you know, actually, I, I think that um, maybe the best way to put it is if, if you if you watch The Prince of Egypt, you know, the, the great cartoon done by Steven Spielberg, is, is they do it such a good job with not only like existing reliefs, but then animating them and bringing those to life to show how Egyptian life was like, and then how that would fit in with the way we're to understand the the biblical story. And I would even say, I think, um, based upon what we can tell from the, um, you know, from the from from the the language that we have in the Book of Exodus, that we're kind of intended we're in, we're intended to do that. Like we're 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 intended to kind of be brought into this ancient Egyptian mindset that the Israelites had clear awareness of. And and so I think that um, it, it makes for a very interesting study to look at not just, of course, the plagues, but all of the Exodus event against these very colorful backdrops. Yeah, and it's funny. Uh, so the Prince of Egypt, for my money, is actually probably the most accurate Exodus depiction in Hollywood, which is not a hard, high bar to clear, perhaps. But I, like, I sit there and I watch it with my kids. I'm like, this is way more accurate than the more recent depiction of the whole thing. But I think... Oh, the, you, the most recent see, one with Christian Bale was Yeah, we horrifying. don't want that one at all. <laughs> and it's, it, it, I think Prince of Egypt gives the, the, you know, the OG Ten Commandments a run for its money, too. Uh, yeah, they're both way better than the Christian Bale one. So, but like when you, when you get to Egypt and you actually see those rare places where the colors are really well attacked, 
you realize how living and vibrant their world was. And it's easy to just go there or see pictures. And it looks to our sort of Western eyes, I guess you could say, or American eyes anyway, that it looks very dusty and dry and brown. And, and it doesn't look like all that much of a living place, except for those little chunks along the Nile. But when you actually see the full color palette of the reliefs, and then you get you get a much better sense for just how vibrant and active this place was when the Israelites were there. And I think it helps give it a better flavor and a better context. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, just to go a, maybe a step further back and say, so not only do we have the greatest story in the Hebrew Bible being heavily influenced by Egypt and Egyptian culture and life, and the plagues are a huge part of that. But even if we think about its enduring legacy in the ancient world to to Greek um, uh, understanding of their own architecture and art, or even Greek myth, which has a lot to do with interaction with Egypt, and of course that gets transferred over to the Romans, and then the Romans spending time there, going up and down the Nile. It's it's really incredible that you see all of our great stories that we have um, have some connection with the civilization that was so much older than the civilizations that they encountered. And so I think it's just, it's kind of cool that in these stories, they're, they're going to want to point back to Egypt. They're going to want to point back to it as a place of origin, or in the case of the Bible, a place that they sort of appreciate, but also it became a place of, of bondage. And, and so it's just kind of an interesting thing when you think of uh, ancient Egypt as this enduring fascination um, that we see across the board when it comes to the ancient world. Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> and I think we see, I guess, getting back to the plagues now, we can see some really obvious Egypt details as we discuss. We'll see a lot of those. And sometimes they're like really minor, seemingly minor incidental details that I'll talk about that are like our author of the book of Exodus is trying to set this in a very specific geographic context. And, um, and I think that's all really fascinating, brings out a lot of dimensions in the text. But um, I think we wanted to start with some of the literary things first. Yeah, why don't we'll, we look, why don't we look at the literary structure? The geography. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, why don't, why don't we start with the literary structure? How do these plagues work? Everyone knows there are 10 plagues, uh, but what are these plagues? Um, how, do we, how do they work um, in, in terms of the overall uh, narrative? And uh, I would say another thing is, uh, I mean, we have our list in, in Exodus, of course, which dominates the first several chapters before we get to the big one and the, you know, the Exodus event in chapter 14 and chapter 15. But there's also some different lists that we can look at in Psalm 78 and Psalm 105. So how do, how do these work from a, a literary perspective? Because we only have really one source, the Bible, to go off of. Yeah, so there's a, there, I think there's at least like three big topics kind of embedded in this part of the discussion. One is the source criticism. That's the kind of thing you mentioned just last there. Another is the relationship between Exodus and Psalm 78, especially, but I guess Psalms, what, 78 and 105. And then the last one would be the structure with the way the plagues are structured. So I'll kind of hit each of those in order with a big answer here. Okay, so first of all, when it comes to source critics, there's not really a consensus. There's a really a dizzying array of different theories regarding which source lies behind a particular plague. So J. 
for Yahwist, E for Elohist, P for Priestly, and D for Deuteronomist. For anyone who's not familiar with, that's the old sort of main view of the sources. Um, if you go all the way back to Driver, he believed the plagues were composed of J, the Yahwist, with and Priestly sources with a small portion of the Elohist. Recently, if you want to be more up to speed on it, Friedman opines that the plagues are the Elohist and the priestly source with a later redactor. So now we get to add another source, R, for redactor. And the idea that scholars are using here is to try to figure out the, the, the way to distinguish the sources, I should say, is the use of either Yahweh or Elohim as the name of God. But, you know, this is, this is I think, uh, a house of cards that's toppling in a lot of ways. Elohim, for example, is never alone in a plague cycle, as Hoffmeyer pointed out in his um, Israel and Egypt back in the late 90s. And then you get other scholars, you know, they all pick a different one without getting too technical. And at the end of the day, you know, you, you get this sort of idea that there's no good consensus and maybe that source critical method isn't really the best approach to the plagues anymore. Um, and so I would say that uh, there's markers of unity that suggest that the source critical method isn't the starting point or the end all be all for for the composition of the text. Though I am not myself, I don't consider myself a source critic. I just if if it was really compelling, there shouldn't be this much debate on every single little thing. You see what I mean? Yeah, you know, I one question I've uh, I've had is. Uh, and you can always correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here. I'm out. I'm, sometimes I'm out of my depth when I'm talking about ancient Egypt. Um, but I, from what I understand, the Egyptian week is um, ten days, as opposed to our seven days, um, which derives from other from other sources. And I, I, in terms of unity um, of you know, obviously biblical numbers, they like seven and twelve and forty. Uh, although the Egyptians are probably glad there weren't 12 or 40 plagues, uh, just just 10. Um, but I wonder if, just as you have in, like, the creation week uh, in Genesis, where it lends itself to a number 7, um, if the number 10 in general should be connected with an Egyptian week. Um, actually, I've never actually heard that suggested before, but uh, it is kind of odd that it's 10 instead of 7 or 12, um, when we when we talk about the the biblical numbers, now for our ears, you know, ten is is a good number because it's a nice round number. Um, in Mesopotamia, uh, maybe it would have been sixty because they always like to have uh, the number the number sixty. And so I, I'm just curious, has that ever come up in your in your study? The idea of of even the number ten and being connected with a week, it does seem to be an interesting um, an interesting connection, if not a coincidence. Yeah, well, we can throw out the idea that Moses is using the metric system, right? So why else would he pick 10? Um, I, you know, I haven't come across that, though. That is really interesting. I'm going to have to play around with that some more. Um, at first, my first thought that comes to mind is that could really fit because what the plagues ultimately do, and again, we'll get into this more later, but what they ultimately do is upset the order of creation, specifically in a geographical context of life on the Nile. And so picking a number symbolic for the Egyptians actually is a pretty good fit. Whether we would connect that to creation and the work week is a little bit trickier at that point, but just the value of the number 10, I think I would say we could make a lot of sense. And the rest of it, I'd want to look into more. But yeah, it's an interesting thought. Um, 
let me go back to the Psalms thing real quick. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a big discussion in the literature among scholars about the relationship between the plague narratives in Exodus 7 through 12, right? The main thing we're talking about here and the mention of the plagues in Psalms 78 and 105. Um, because there's a difference in sequencing and numbering in the Psalms, and some people think that that means the Psalms are older, 78 especially, fronts the wilderness experience to highlight that, that the, that the Israelites had forgotten the what, what Yahweh had demonstrated in the plagues. But I, I think this is much ado about nothing. I think it's just liturgical license for the psalmist. Right? He fronts the part that is the bigger part of his message. And I think it would be absurd to think that the psalmist doesn't know his own tradition or is, is so out of touch with his own people's narrative story of, of origin here that he he gets the wilderness in front of the plagues. You know, I mean, this is clearly liturgical and didactic concerns that are driving the bus here. Um, so I don't think there's really any other reason to get too worked up about the difference in the sequencing there, at least for what I want to do in this episode, we're going to follow the Exodus sequencing, recognizing that the psalmist has different goals in mind than just a straightforward retelling in sequence. Yeah. I mean, just, just to and, clarify. Yeah. So what you're, what you're saying is, is that um, Psalm 78 when it's when it records the plagues, when it records the wilderness, and maybe the order is slightly different, that's not evidence of an earlier tradition in which the wilderness wanderings were before the plagues, and the plagues were, you know, in a different order. He, Psalm seventy-eight is just doing it poetically, and he's bringing them in at, in a different order, mainly so that they have a different um, a different tone, or the way he's hitting you with the 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 whole psalm is meant to make you think about it in a different way. Uh, which totally makes sense. I mean, um, I, I, I have a hard time with these types of arguments that try to say <laughs> Psalm seventy-eight is the real sequence. Like, really, like really, they they went through the wilderness before they had the plagues. Like that, it just makes no it sense. Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't make any narrative like sense. Imagine, imagine a sermon being recorded for posterity and being one of the sermons that you know thousands of years later is very important and it's somehow canonical. Okay. Just work with it for a second. And this sermon was about the crucifixion. But at some point in the sermon, to demonstrate that Christ is the Son of God, the preacher also referenced the birth narratives. But in order, he actually did the crucifixion first and then the birth. But then it's recorded as he did it, and everyone's like, oh, wait a second, do we have the order wrong? Like, that's the equivalent here. Obviously, the wilderness is after <laughs> the plagues. And... And if we have a prose source and a poetry source, pride of place for like sequence of events should obviously go for the prose source. In this case, obviously Exodus. Yeah, so I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I too hung up on this. It's pretty straightforward, but I did want to mention it. I, I think that. Um, I mean, I, I'm not trying to poo-poo the entire edifice of of source criticism by any stretch. I think that there's a lot involved with it. And I think there's many uh, observations that can be made. Um, I would just say there is kind of an overwillingness to um, let the sources be disparate as opposed to trying to read them in um, harmonization. Um, and that, so it, it just really kind of depends on your presuppositions when you're coming, when you're coming to the text. And so 
I think at least for us in this in this session, we're going to take the the view that the plagues are uh, okay. Maybe there was some updating, or or maybe there were some sources that were involved, but this tradition is is more or less um, meant to go together as representing the, the ten plagues that we have and uh, approach it from from the book of Exodus perspective. But there's still a lot of questions, right? Like, okay, if if this is meant to be a uh, a unified text, and this is the way that we're meant to read the original uh, tradition of these of these ten plagues, uh, how are we to understand how the the plagues work? Are they pairs? Uh, do one and two go together? Do two and uh, then three and four go together? Or are they um, in, in a triad, you know, where we have three sets uh, for the first nine and the tenth is something else? What, what, what's, your, what's your take on that? Yeah, so um, on the literary unity, I think it's also worth noting that there are very well-respected, formidable scholars who certainly specialize in the Hebrew. I think it's safe to say more than either of us such as Gary Rensberg, who says, look, if the source critics can't agree, then maybe we need a different uh, structure. And he stresses the literary unity. He's a whole chapter in uh, the Did I Not Bring Israel Out of Egypt book that's titled something like The Literary Unity of Exodus, or, or whatever the exact title is. Um, is and so like, I, it's not just me kind of like spitballing here. There's, there's, there's fundamentally... Uh, Hebrew scholars saying this as well, like, hey, what if we look at the literary unity? What can we do with it there? And then I think the two theories that you mentioned are the ones that really stand out there. Uh, the pairs one is attractive on a certain level with certain couplets. So like gnats and then flies. It's like, oh man, you really want to connect those obviously right in a row. But I think the best by a pretty wide margin is actually understanding it as a triad so the pairs is probably the simplest one right so like the niles the central to the first pair well the second pair is insects the third pair is disease and so on and I'm, I'm not saying that if you think that you're wrong but i think there's a stronger pattern with the plagues as triads so the first nine plagues you then would divide into three groups of three with the tenth plague standing alone due to its sort of obvious supernatural and climactic nature so then within each triad and this is where i think it gets really really interesting and specific pharaoh is warned about the first two plagues but then not the third and our author also includes really interesting details that seem like they're not that important but when you look at it as a, an author trying to show supernatural things happening in the real world or real world things happening on a almost supernatural scale or with precise timing, you can see why the, he is including all these different details. So like an example of that, that I think is, it sounds really boring the first time you're like, who cares? But if you think about everything we were saying earlier in, uh, in Exodus seven fifteen, God tells Moses to quote, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. On the surface, why do we care that he's going out onto the water? Why is that detail included? It's yeah, to that's interesting. The real life nature of this: we are in Egypt. We're going to reference that water a lot. Hmm. Uh, so, if you get back to the triad, the first three plagues concern water and the creatures that inhabit them. So, the Nile to blood, 
fish, frogs, mosquitoes, all these kind of things. Frogs and mosquitoes being the next two, obviously. Um, the plagues of the second triad affected first people, then cattle for the fifth. And then the last one in this triad, the sixth, is both people and cattle. And then lastly, the third sequence of three, those were all like you look up to the sky and there's a calamity, right? Locusts, the sun going dark, and so on. So I think this triad structure is sort of reinforced both by the descriptions employed by the author and the details we get about Pharaoh and then the general content. So I think it works really well on a couple different levels. Right. So, and I think so you're all of that makes it more likely that we have a single author because there's so yeah, much that, that, deliberate that makes literary sense. device. Right. So if you see a sequence all the way through um, where you have these divided up into into three sets of three plus one, and they're all connected with uh, different elements. So what you're saying, just to reiterate, the first is connected with water and its after effects. So the Nile's turned to blood, number one. Number two, it's frogs coming on land. And number three, it's flies or mosquitoes. Those are all elements that are connected with uh, the Nile itself and the Nile being turned to blood. And uh, so that forms the, the first triad. And then the second triad is uh, the the issue with with gnats or lice or whatever uh, that's meant to be flies, then, whatever, however you want to translate it. Yeah, then then livestock with uh, them being um, tormented and then boils on on people. So that represents um, people, but in some sense you well, could actually, also say the boils say, are on both people and livestock. Mm -hmm. But you could also say that that's yeah. representative of 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 what's happening to people, but also on land, right? As opposed to the, the water. And then the third triad you said is hail, locusts, and darkness, which are all sort of in the air. So uh, you have the three sets all kind of representing the three facets of Egyptian uh, daily life, water, land, uh, air, but also, you know, people in the middle being heavily affected um, as opposed to as opposed to the water element. So it's it, it is interesting that um, you see those things that are divided up in kind of like discrete categories and they sort of flow into each other. Um, and they also, I mean, even though we talk about this as you know being arranged with ten uh, with the perhaps the Egyptian week, it 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 kind of separates the the nine from the tenth. you know that the tenth becomes like the the culmination of of these, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm just sort of thinking out loud through some of this as we discuss it, too. Um, with the idea of the 10 and the creation, one thing that's clear to me with the plagues, including the 10th plague, is that Yahweh has intervened in an emphatic way in creation, demonstrating that he holds order and all this together, not Pharaoh, that it is for the Egyptians, the concept ma'at, truth, order, and you know cosmic stability right all sorts of things are embedded in that term but it's an all-encompassing term that pharaoh has to keep that the commoners keep and here whether you're in the water on the land or look up to the sky there is no order because yahweh is intervening in in very clear ways and demonstrating who really controls all this and i think theologically that's plain as day as part of the author author's intent. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really 
like the point, as you say, and, and if you think about even the first meeting they have, Moses and, and Pharaoh, Pharaoh makes the statement, you know, who is Yahweh that I should care? Who, who is Yahweh that I should, you know, bow the knee to this character, to this other deity? And there is very much the, the sense in when we talk about, um, when we talk about this, this narrative, of the territorial aspect of of deities even egyptians themselves and i think a a nice one to to think about is the famous um the famous uh treaty made between ramses ii and um and the king of hati the kingdom of hati where they call to witness all of the different deities from egypt as well as hati like they're not excluding the storm god of Hati because they don't believe in it because they're, you know, their 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 religion is only you know from Egypt, but instead they're they're bringing together all of these concepts and so in Egypt that's where these gods are and in the kingdom of Hati that's where these gods are and so from the Egyptian perspective, Yahweh is a a, a new god on the block and he's coming into their land they've never even heard of him and he must be a, a god of somewhere else and so he really invades their land um, to carry out these various plagues. And I, one of the things I've been really struck by as, as we've worked together on, um, you know, a book on the uh, Exodus and Wilderness Wanderings geography is where that, 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 that territorialism really comes out, not only in the plagues as we've seen, but when, he, when um, Israel does leave Egypt and they're going to go out to, you know, three days journey into the wilderness, outside of the land of Pharaoh, and that's going to be enter into Yahweh's domain. And, and so you have like the conflict on the edge of what is considered to be Egyptian territory versus what is going to be uh, apparently Yahweh's territory in the wilderness. And so the author is really playing with two concepts, you might say. He's playing with the concept that Yahweh is the one absolute deity uh, over everything, and there's a sense in which all land is his land, but you also have this condescension on the part of the God of the Bible, on the part of Moses, and even I would say on the part of the Egyptians, that he's going to, uh, basically, uh, Yahweh is basically going to operate on their home turf according to their own rules about how they think about the world, <laughs> piece by piece, he's going to break every element of how they thought uh, Egyptian order, as you said, Ma'at, is controlled. And, and and that's what I think it makes it so compelling. It's not just a, oh, you're an idiot because you think the world is uh, divided up between these various powers, and Pharaoh ultimately has these powers. That's just not a correct worldview. He actually is like, not necessarily saying this is the correct worldview, but he's saying, I'm going to show you at each stage how I have power over it. And so I think that's why ultimately this is such a compelling element. Um, I'd love for you to comment on that, but as we think about this more, one one concept that is related to this is how in the past uh, scholars uh, have wanted to connect each plague with a particular deity. And so if, if you could comment more on kind of the concepts that I know we both agree on with, with what I just mentioned, but also thinking about why it's possible in some ways to do this, to say, for instance, like the Nile is 
connected with the god Hoppy, and you know he's this kind of like blue blue god with saggy belly <laughs> and so on, and a lily pad on his head. Um, but why that may be just a bit too simplistic. Like, what are your thoughts on you know this overall concept of? Uh, as Exodus 12, 12 says, God passing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Yeah, so um, let me back up to the Hittite Treaty for a second, too, because I think to really frame this right, we have to understand, and I think your your explanation is a very good one, how ancients perceive the deities. Like, it's just a very foreign thought to us. It's like God is just in control, and you either believe in God or you're like a naturalist, you know, in 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 our world today, you're like one of the monotheistic faiths or you're a deist or whatever, you know? So like, there's only a, a few options and most of them don't get that territorial at all. But within the Hittite treaty, which is actually on the wall that I oversee the project for, right? We have that concession now, which was cool. We just got that for the first time this last season. And we barely got past the part uh, of doing our epigraphic recordation of the treaty, we barely got past the part where it's the preamble with all the gods that are in attendance. And it's so repetitious that it actually helps us when there are glyphs missing because we're like, oh, we know that the next god is this one. This is probably what this would glyph would have been. It would fit right here, but it's broken off. Right? They're so into this idea that they can't even get into the meat and potatoes of one of the most famous ancient texts until they've covered all this with the gods in, for both civilizations. I mean, it's it's not a footnote to the to this whole understanding. It is the number one thing they lead with is the God. So they, they don't do like refer to page one for a list of yeah. all the deity. <laughs> it's, it's always it a repeat. <laughs> the starting point, right? <laughs> so I think that tells you just how prominent this kind of thinking was and how important it was. And then it's almost like when God is like, you know, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, when they, like you referenced them asking to go out into the wilderness to worship Yahweh, it's like he's playing nice. Like, I know, Pharaoh, in your mind, your God's rule here. So if my people want to worship me, I'll just play along with this idea, right? And I'll, we'll ask to go out in the desert. Now he's like, oh, who's Yahweh that I should care? Well, you know, keep it up and you'll find out. It's, so the author is sort of building to all this, as usual within the Old Testament, where they, God gives the opportunities to get it right initially, and then they don't. And that's the same thing with the cycle where Pharaoh is warned, he's warned, and then he's not warned on to the next triad. So I think all this really fits that literary structure we were talking about as well. Okay, so to the gods, um, you mentioned Hopi as a possibility. The other one that always stands out to people is the sun god Ra or Amun-Ra, and of course the plague of darkness. Now, those things, I think, couldn't re certainly reference, th those plagues could potentially, obviously, be a reference to Egyptian deities there in a sort of broad, generic way. But I think other ones that people sometimes latch on to are a little bit anachronistic. So that when cattle are affected, they'll say, oh, well, there's the Apis bull, or there's Hathor, who's often depicted as a cow. This must be an attack on that idea and the problem with that is the egyptians didn't look at a cow and be like ah look it's the living embodiment of hathor respect the cow right that's a very anachronistic thought um and so i think we have to be really careful with some of these and i think what exodus 12 12 is referencing is not that every plague has to be somehow forced to have an egyptian deity attached to it 
but it's that the gods who are supposed to, by the Egyptian worldview, control all this, in fact, control none of it. And it doesn't matter if we can aspect a god to it all that well, which I generally reject it on the whole. It matters that Pharaoh and the gods cannot keep Ma'at, any of them and all of them, because it is God who orders the cosmos. And so I think that's yeah. the main thing. Yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree. And I, and I would also just add that as we think about this as an ancient Near Eastern background element for the way we interpret um, the, the exodus and the plagues, is while we both agree that there are strong um, ancient Egyptian elements that we can, we can see in the text, it doesn't necessarily uh, mean that the book of Exodus is presenting an entirely Egyptian perspective. In fact, it certainly isn't. Right. Um, in other words, like when you read the book of Exodus and, and even talk about the plagues, it's not a treatise on Egyptian theology or Egyptian beliefs about uh, creation or Egyptian beliefs about uh, really anything that's all that well developed. At the most, what we're talking about is an Israelite understanding uh, to a certain level of what the Egyptians thought and a polemic against that. And so uh, what yes. we can't get from Exodus is what the Egyptians actually thought about the sky or thought about the water or thought about from their own perspective. We have what an Israelite is thinking. So it, it's, it's sort of like one or two steps removed, depending on when you date the book of Exodus, but it's really clear from, from my perspective, that they do have some concept of what the Egyptians are, are thinking, are doing, the way that they're thinking about the world. And, and so instead of uh, having a mascot, like a college football team, uh, that we can associate with each plague, um, what we're seeing is um, elements. And it's, and it's tempting to do that. I mean, I've prepared those charts. Um, that it, it is tempting to, 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 to really look for frogs and say Hecat or, or look for other ones. Um, but I think that your point about arranging it geographically, arranging it in terms of a, of a, of a triad, arranging it um, in terms of the big ones, especially uh, the Nile, um, Amun-Ra, and, and especially as, 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 you know, as foreign as it seems to our ears, Pharaoh himself is, in some sense, the most powerful deity while he is alive because he has so much of his uh, life bound up in the fortunes of Egypt, and they consider to him to be a living god. Not that he is the sole deity, uh, the solar deity, uh, is Amun-Ra, but he is the embodiment of, of the god Horus while he's on earth. And so um, that, as far as the 10th plague, gives actually Pharaoh pride of place um, among these different plagues and among the, um, the, the worldview and, uh, and, and worship that the Egyptian had from the Bible's perspective. It, it points to Pharaoh and says, you know, he is the one that the ultimate authority rests with, and therefore he is the one who has to ultimately be conquered. Um, and so I, I think that's, again, understanding that is what makes this whole story work. It's it's why it's compelling. Like we talked um, uh, a, a couple a couple uh, sessions ago, I uh, I was with 
um, Oliver Hersey at JUC, and we were talking about why the story of Ruth works. I mean, we all recognize it's a, it's a beautiful story, and Ruth and Boaz are, are great, but like, there's parts of that story that are totally incomprehensible unless unless you understand the like if you don't understand the kinsman redeemer aspect it, it the story is just bizarre i mean it, it it can't work on its face on a lifetime uh <laughs> it can't be a lifetime movie unless you do the explanation of why the kinsman redeemer works it, it can't be this great love story and and i think that that's certainly the case here if we if we draw an analogy to the exodus you have to have some understanding of what the ancient Egyptians thought about their land, about their sky, about their river, about their deities, um, to really understand what Yahweh is doing. Now, you can understand, yeah, God destroys Egypt and he saves his people, but to really get into the nuts and bolts, which the author does with with uh, with this, um, you have to understand that background. And once again, it shows um, that the author really knows his stuff when it comes to uh, it comes to ancient Egypt, and uh, I wouldn't say necessarily that there are, and maybe you would say otherwise, Mark, um, but there are definite New Kingdom um, Egyptian elements that we see in the plagues. I think we do see it in, in other places, especially with um, the driving in the Red Sea and uh, the treaty structures. Uh, as well as uh, the tabernacle and the ark, which we'll get to later. Um, but regardless, it, it certainly would fit in to the new kingdom, as well as you know before or after, because the theology is largely um, similar. Um, but there's definitely an awareness of of that, if not a you know a, a full awareness. Would would you say that's accurate? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I think that's accurate. I, I, like if we were to try to use the plagues to help us date the events recorded in the text, I don't think we're going to get very far because it could just as easily apply to second intermediate period, middle kingdom. You know, the, this theology is relatively static in Egypt, but like you said, like the, the structure of the treaty is very much at home in the late bronze age and, and new kingdom uh, when we get treaty mm. and covenant. So yeah, I, but I, the, the plagues absolutely fit the new kingdom, but they're none of the stuff with the Egyptian ideology or theology is uniquely new kingdom, I would say. But there are some yeah, just, just to to give a coins. Sort of... can, can I just say one quick, quick comment? Just just to give an example, mm -hmm. like um, like the Bible obviously is talking about in the ninth plague the darkness. It's obviously directed at a solar deity, mm -hmm. but all throughout Egyptian <laughs> belief and practice, there have been solar deities. Sometimes and they're uh, always it's important. Atum. <laughs> sometimes it's Amun. Sometimes it's Ra. Sometimes it's Amun Ra. Sometimes Ra it's Pharaoh. Yeah, and it, and it moves all throughout. So the Bible doesn't say this plague is directed against Amun-Ra and the 19th dynasty, but its focus is obviously on the conception of, of the, the solar deity that all throughout uh, ancient Egypt was a, was a key component. So that's kind of that's kind of just an example of, of each element. And, and I think uh, what you were saying in terms of an anachronistic approach, you can't just pick and choose which deity uh, deity mascot you can use <laughs> because they're I, they're worshipped in different parts of Egypt at different times and sometimes at the same time and sometimes they have more emphasis than others and so it that's part of the reason why um, this whole approach of one plague goes with one deity doesn't doesn't quite work so I, I didn't mean to cut you off but I wanted yeah, they, to they I think our audience realism. is interested in that they love contradiction 
they like the gods to do one thing in one story and something completely different. And, you know, and one time Hathor is a, you know, a panther and the next she's a cow. You know, so it's like, you're going to lose the, the inherent meaning in the text if you force feed that into it too much. But so like back to the, to the coin analogy, just because I think it's important to do some more with the geography before we wrap up here. Um, so one side of the coin to understanding, I think, the plagues in a rich, full way is all the things we've been talking about with Egyptian worldview, ideology, mindset, even theology. Though, again, the Bible is not trying to be comprehensive there, but it does look very authentically, you know, well-informed on Egyptian worldview. The second side, the other side of that coin is the simple geographic realities that we see, which is part of the discussion from the literary structure but we can go a, a step further for a few minutes on that. Uh, and quite simply, other than the 10th plague, the other plagues deal with natural phenomena readily observable in the Nile Delta, right? Like in life along the Nile. And I want to quote eminent Egyptologist Kenneth Kitchen here, because um, I just love this quote so much. Quote, we are dealing with the reality with realia here, river, fish, frogs, insect, cattle, humans. And not a fantasy world of dragons, monsters, or other plainly mythical beings. And in a real country, not an imaginary place unknown to geography. And I think that's a really good launching point for kind of the other thing I wanted to make sure we talked about with the plagues. And that is that the 10th plague is, of course, supernatural on the whole. The other ones are real phenomena that are either the timing is perfect or the scope is beyond what would be normal, but they're not, like he said, dragons or floating mountains or other things that are very much a part of ancient Near Eastern myth. And so I, that just geographic realities ground the story in a way. It's just like when I said, why do we hear, or why do we see the phrase when he's going out to the water? Because the biblical author wants us to realize they're in a real world setting, Right. So I think that's worth pointing out. And then that leads to another sort of side point, which I think is much more up for debate. But there's been a, a theory since even the 70s, but Greta Hort wrote an article about this, about the idea that the first six plagues could actually be a sort of natural sequence. Um, and actually, this goes back even further, if you want, to Flinders Petrie. Right, who suggested that the first nine plagues are a sequence prior to the beginning of the Nile inundation. Right? I mean, that's just getting like very specific in the geography. So for Petrie, it was a natural order of troubles on a scale the Egyptians are used to being much smaller. And then with the plagues, it's just humongous. And then Greta Hort wrote her articles. I'm sorry, I said the 70s, they're the 50s. She said that they were after the inundation, not before. Like I said, there's a lot of debate with this, but what the point I think that matters for our listeners is the idea that it's in that real world geography. So like the water turning to blood, she would say like in July and August and then into September, the Nile rose and it would often be reddish in appearance due to particles of soil known as rodera, Roterda, and this would also create um, millions of flagellates that were originally from Ethiopia finding their way into Egypt at this time. They require certain things to, to survive, like more oxygen, particularly at night, leading to lethal fluctuations for her in oxygen levels. 
kills the fish, makes the smell. Now the frogs are fleeing the water. You can kind of see the point, even if you're skeptical of whether all that is really in mind. Of course, the author's not getting into those kind of scientific details, but these then the the rest of the first six, so like two through six, are like a natural consequence of that first plague, which devastates life on the Nile. Um, in fact, frogs, though, if you want to be a little bit more precisely, a little, little less theoretical like she was, frogs do invade in heavy numbers towards the end of the Nile inundation. That's pretty normal in September and October. Um, so you get all these things kind of happening potentially in a sequence. And uh, I think it's a really interesting thought that was just worth noting. Um, and then, of course, plagues seven through nine are easily explained as natural phenomena, though I don't think they're anywhere near as sequential. But I just kind of wanted to note that, that we can, you can go really far with this geographic point. And I'm not saying everyone has to like adopt that theory or they're wrong. I tend to agree with it, but I recognize it, it, it doesn't fit perfectly. And, you know, why just the first six? Like there's some definite questions there. And again, I like the triad structure above all. But just pointing out in terms of like the historicity of the narratives, there's a lot going on here that, that can get very precise with geography along the Nile beyond just, oh, yeah, rivers have frogs. Well, yeah, but frogs do this thing where they get out of the river in a certain time of year. And the flagellates one is pretty, pretty precisely scientific, I would argue. So there's been a lot of work on this that, that I think listeners might find pretty interesting. But again, I think it definitely breaks down once you get to those last few. Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting point. And, and I would just to like add another element to this, to think about it from an Egyptian perspective. Nothing of what happened... Um, maybe except for the, the 10th plague, is going to sound unbelievable to them. In other words, we have possibilities for each of these things reflecting, as you say, realia, that we have in Egyptian records. We have discussions of locust plague. We have discussions of, you know, these various elements that um, ha were they to happen, they'd be like, oh, this is bad, this is terrible, this is something that would particularly come upon our land. But it's not like, as you said, oh, uh, suddenly out of the sky, a fire-breathing dragon came and descended and roasted our fair. Like, these are things that they would, uh, that fit into the context. Now, you can debate, did they actually happen, you know, in this 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 order? But there, you can't debate that this is what the Egyptians feared because these are things that happen. Like, I live in South, South Texas, uh, hurricanes happen, uh, but they don't typically happen. Uh, and then also uh, other elements happen at the same exact uh, time. Uh, I, I think they even use a biblical um, example um, in First Samuel chapter four through six, when we talk about the the ark coming to the Philistines. The Philistines say, "Behold, this is the ark. This is the God who destroyed and did all those plagues in Egypt." And so then it comes among them, among the Philistines, and instead of um, instead of you know the 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 Soric or the Ela River turning to blood, uh, or these other elements that were exactly what you have in Egypt, what happens? You have their deity Dagon, who is a grain deity. He's fallen down, and you have um, the loss of of uh, fertility. And it seems to be in the passage you have 
the loss of, of, of order. People are getting, people are getting sick. And it's a particular elements that fit in with life on the Philistine coast as opposed to Egypt. And so that's, I think, the point that's, that's, that's really clear is that, okay, you can debate, is, is, was this actually um, happened the way the biblical texts say, but you can't debate that it's depicting calamities that fit in with uh, Egypt or with Philistia. Uh, they do fit quite well with what they, with the, what they would have known. And we even have we even have discussions, especially in ancient Egypt, of many of these types of plagues over time, which which for my um, in my opinion uh, makes sense uh, much more with you know the studies that you referenced versus more popular ones in recent years of like you know a, a volcanic eruption and you know all these other things that are I think really outlandish um, as opposed to just to something... go that far afield yeah. to explain the geography. It's all right there with the inundation. And of course, this view that I just explained has been criticized naturally. Um, but most of it comes down to circling back to source criticism. So the, the view of the whole sequence, like that's based in geographic realia and sometimes observable scientific things like the frogs coming out certain times of the year. Right. And, and the criticism is based on hypothetical sources that scholars still have no consensus about the exact way that breaks down. You see which one to me seems to be on firmer footing, pretty obviously. Um, and I think that's to Hort's credit, especially. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think that they, they, they stand together well. And they uh, especially I, I, I'm really partial to the idea of the, the 10 day week and the fact that they go kind of together. Uh, I would say there's there's I always look more into to... that more that you might have inspired an article that maybe I can co-author. <laughs> we'll, with we'll, you. we'll write it up once we finish our other five projects. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we'll do a whole but, episode on just that. <laughs> just that. I mean, there's there's obviously all kinds of things we could bring out further. I think there's a little bit more meat on the bone for the tenth plague, but maybe let's save it for um, what's going to happen next. Let's talk about some of those aspects, uh, on our next, uh, episode of Egypt in the Bible, where we'll look at uh, a few elements. And I'm just going to kind of give you a preview. I'd like to talk about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and, you know, this idea of, of his heart becoming heavy and what that means in ancient Egyptian thought. Uh, I'd like to talk about the, you know, the crown prince and the passing of, of, uh, the torch uh, or or rain and how significant that was with with the death of the firstborn, uh, but also as we as we get out of Egypt, seeing some of these really interesting strategic elements that Yahweh uh, in Exodus, uh, the opening chapters Exodus four and and, and so on, uh, how he reveals these things to Moses as a plan and then basically enacts them. And one of those big ones that we kind of referenced it earlier is to go three days in the wilderness. This keeps coming up again and again, and I have actually an idea about uh, how that actually uh, works, uh, which maybe we can talk about next time as we talk about the geography of of uh, Egypt, or I should say of the Exodus as they're, as they're leaving Egypt and some of the points along the way. But we'll save that till next time, don't you think? Yeah, I do have one last point. The other thing that's really interesting that's going on in those first plagues, and then in the 10th plague, it's explained with all the detail in the world is how the plagues aren't affecting the Israelites. Right. So that's another potentially supernatural element, but it's also because they're not as dependent on being right alongside the Nile, uh, though they are in the Delta. But I think that's another one of those supernatural things. I did want to make sure we noted that 
this is not an attempt to say God's intervention is somehow minimized, but I think that we can actually understand it through the lens of cultural geography, if you want to kind of combine it all into one term. Yeah, and and I would just close with with that. That's a great point. With a point back to the last episode that we did, where we talked about the 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 date of the Exodus and so on from an early versus uh, late date. Um, one of the key points was the setting of this location in the land of Goshen and the fact that in the 19th dynasty you had the pharaohs setting up shop in uh, NP Ramses as opposed to in uh, in southern Egypt in upper Egypt uh, around around Thebes and so we we have them close together according to the text itself that we have the Israelites living in the land of Goshen next to P. Ramses, and so these are very close to one another. And to, to just to further bring out your point, that um, difference of how it's being affected upon essentially a next door neighbor, uh, the Egyptians, and not being affected upon these pastoralists who live more or less in the same region, was something that the text is really wanting us to, to see based upon the close proximity. Um, and so um, as we as we transition, then uh, we'll we'll talk more about this some of these aspects as we're getting out of Egypt on our on our next episode. But until next time, um, keep digging, uh, you biblical world audience, and we look forward to uh, doing more of the Egypt in the Bible with uh, Mark Jansen and myself. So uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.